Welcome to the latest edition of the Mind Gut Conversation podcast, a place to learn about groundbreaking ideas from thought leaders in the area of health, food, the science of mind-body interactions, and the environment. Today, I have the great pleasure to speak to Dr. Martin Blazer, a pioneer and global thought leader in the area of the gut microbiome. Let me just mention a few of Dr. Blazer's amazing accomplishments. He holds the Henry Rutgers Chair of the Human Microbiome at Rutgers University and serves as director of the Center for Advanced Biotechnology and Medicine. He previously served as chair of the Department of Medicine at New York University. A physician and microbiologist, Dr. Blazer has been studying the relationship we have with the human microbiome, the trillions of bacteria that live in us. Over the last 20 years, he has also been actively studying the relationship of the human microbiome with both health and important diseases, including asthma, obesity, diabetes, and cancer. Dr. Placer has served as president of the Infectious Diseases Society of America, chair of the Board of Scientific Counselors of the National Cancer Institute, and chair of the Advisory Board for Clinical Research of the NIH. He currently serves as chair of the Presidential Advisory Council for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria. He was elected to the National Academy of Medicine and the American Academy for Arts and Sciences, and has received numerous awards for its scientific work, including the Alexander Fleming Award and the Robert Koch Gold Medal. Last but not least, Dr. Blazer has published over 650 original scientific articles, holds 24 U.S. patents, and is the author of the best-selling book, Missing Microbes, a book targeted to general audiences now translated into 20 languages. Together with his wife, Gloria Dominguez, he stars in the new award-winning documentary, The Silent Extinction. Welcome to the show, Marty. So it's it's a pleasure to talk to you, Marty, because of COVID. We haven't really been able to do this in person, but this is a great opportunity to um, you know, get your opinion on, on, on a large number of important <coughs> topics. And let me just start out with... Um, with with your book, the the missing microbes, which has really had a major impact on, I, I think on the on the lay public and understanding the implications of some you know lifestyle changes and, and particularly the use of the inappropriate use of antibiotics. If if you had to identify one or two things that has happened since the publication of your book that have really shaped uh, the microbiome field, which, which ones would those be? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I, um, uh, I, I started thinking about the concept of missing microbes around the year 2000. And I, I actually wrote it in 2012, and it was published in 2014. So that's, that's now nine years ago. And, um, you know, a lot of things, you know, the, the progress of science is like it's slow it's you know it's like a wave and then some uh, there's like a little peak etc and to me i think to me one of the things that is uh, most um uh confirming is that uh, there's 
actually, there's been a lot of confirmation of the ideas in missing microbes since then, mm -hmm. uh, from both studies in people and studies in uh, experimental models. And really, there are two big ideas in missing microbes. The first is that we've lost a lot of our diversity. Mm -hmm. And the second is that it's causing diseases. And, and in these nine years, there's been a lot of evidence for both of these, that, that these really are true phenomena. You know, when I started thinking about it around 2000, it was just like, you know, pie in the sky. But, um, it, you know, it, it seems to be a true story. But there have been advances. Maybe, maybe you know, one of the advances is, is in the microbiome field, how people are beginning to harness the microbiome uh, to affect therapies like especially for cancer treatments, for example. This, this is really an important area of research. Yeah, and um, I mean, you've also, I, I should mention this, we could probably come back to this later. Um, uh, you, you just came out, um, you know, with your wife, a really amazing documentary film. Um, what what points did you highlight in your in your film? What, what points did the directors highlight in the film? Yeah, well, the film is called The Invisible Extinction, and it was made by Steve Lawrence and Sarah Shank. They're independent filmmakers. They approached, right after Missing Microbes was published, they approached me uh, and said, you know, we'd like to make a film about this. And uh, we have been working with them for the last eight years. Oh, and, my God. In part because it's an independent film. You know, they're always trying to raise money. and But eventually they finished it. It, it premiered last year in Copenhagen and now just premiered in Los Angeles and in New York. So it, it, it's coming along. And, you know, the title kind of says it a lot, the invisible extinction. It's, it's like the, the con continuation of missing microbes. And, uh, and, and this film, in addition to laying out the, the problem and the story, also talks about solutions, mm -hmm. ways that people can try to help themselves in ways that people are helping themselves. And, and a very big, important global solution, the, uh, the launching of the Microbiota Vault, uh, which is a project led by Gloria, uh, to, to save the microbes and store them for future generations, just like the seed vault. Yeah, so to anybody who has not seen that film, um, I would highly recommend it. I've seen it myself actually a couple of times. And, um, could relate to particularly to some of the scenes in the in the in the jungle of uh, Venezuela uh, at the uh, Yanomami uh, indigenous people. Um, but I would highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in the microbiome field and in their own health, really, because it has an implication for a lot of people. A lot of people with small children or plan to get pregnant, um, and the the bad thing is it's not visible this extinction, and I think. You know, that's why it doesn't get enough attention um, as you would think it should have with the, the, these major impacts. You know, it's like it's like seeing climate change 50 years ago. Yeah. That there are some people who, who, who saw it, who knew about it. Uh, they talked about the greenhouse effect in those days, but it just it wasn't in the vocabulary. It wasn't in the contemporary culture. And as a result, it got worse and worse. Uh, uh, before people began to wake up. And in some ways, this is analogous. And that's why we're crusading to yeah. let people know about this because we're digging ourselves into a hole and it's getting deeper and deeper. And the 
sooner we start to uh, stop the damage and fill in the hole, uh, the better the long-term outcomes are going to be. Yeah, so we'll we'll probably, if you have time, come back to you know to some aspects of of, of the film. Um, um, I want to address this topic that you know you have covered in, in for a long time in many different ways. This phenomenon of extinction of micro and I would say macro organisms uh, on the planet, and um, so a lot of people don't make that connection to say, oh yeah, our, our, our you know our microbes. It, as long as I, I as long as I take my my pills for my chronic diseases and I live till ninety years old, you know I'm 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 happy. Um, but this is a an interesting phenomenon that we see this both on a macroscopic scale and in, in, in really unanticipated proportions and on a microscopic one. Um, I was wondering why why do you think what's the mechanism that underlies that these trends are happening at the same time? Is is there a shared mechanism or is it is this just coincidence? Uh, no, I don't think it's coincidence. Uh, and um, uh, I think there are shared mechanisms. I mean, one of it, one, one of the points is that we live in a microbial world. You know, bacteria are the, are the center of the biosphere all over the world. And it, whether you're talking about in humans or in animals or in plants, in the oceans, it, it, bacteria have been here the longest. They're the most numerous. Uh, they weigh more than all the forms of life in Earth. Even you know all the microscopic bacteria. If you put them on a scale together, they weigh more than 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 all the plants and animals. Um, so we live in a bacterial world, and people noticed the extinctions of of of, of visible things, visible plants and animals first. Some of that may be due to changes in their microbiome because of the effects of modern life, including climate change and fertilizers and many other things. And then, of course, now we have this extinction within us, uh, uh, this microbial extinction within us that, that we now know. And I, I think all of them are driven by the fact that human activities have just increased in scale, you know, compared to a century ago. We're, we're just we're doing things, you know, the, we're chopping down the rainforest and we're, we're fertilizing, you know, millions of acres of fields and we're populating the planet with, with cows. And, you know, it, the, the list goes on and tremendous fertilizers and phosphates that, you know, what, what we're doing to the soil, many of them for good reasons. We're trying to feed people, but people aren't looking at the consequences. Hmm. So, so just as, just as I think we have a deficit of bacteria in the human body, we have a deficit of bacteria in the soil and agricultural areas. We're depleting it. We're depleting our aquifers in many places, as as you know, as well known. So we're living at a rapacious pace right now, and so it's not surprising that it has manifestations in a few different directions. Yeah. So I mean, I like this term mismatch. You know, the mismatch of the model that um, I would say particularly, you know, Western people have had in their minds to, um, uh, you know, how they should interact with the planet um, to subdue it and to extract as much as they can. 
uh, without thinking about consequences or impacts on other life forms or in the networks of of of, of life on on the planet it's the mismatch of of that that's stored in our brain really and that we transmit in our you know in our children and the, and the reality which is something totally different you know which acts according to totally different principles to networks and uh systems and um so I, I think that clash of those two concepts is really what we're seeing. And probably the only hope that we have is that, you know, we can change these 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 pre preconceptions that we carry around with us um, and 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 really fundamentally change our interactions with with the planet. Do you it, it, yeah. it, you know, just to further your point? Um, you know, for most of human existence, we, we lived on a scale so that the natural, the forces of nature completely dominated. And, and we, we were, you know, we were just specks. Nature did things and the, and the world was seemed infinite and inex, inexhaustible. And now in the last century, um, our human activities have increased so much. You know, so everywhere you go, you know, there are plastics, you know, you, you see them in the ocean and, and, you know, waters that were once pristine no longer are. And, you know, and the list goes on and on. We, our human activities have have really shown that the, the earth is not inexhaustible and, 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 and we're stressing it in many places. Yeah, let me go from that. I mean, I, I find personally find it a fascinating theme and I, I never thought when I, you know, became a gastroenterologist that this would become one of my main areas of interest. But uh, I, I think a lot of people still see it in in different ways. Probably the majority of of of, of people. Um, but if we ask ourselves, I mean, when when did this change? You know, the you you made this connection to the epidemic of non-communicable diseases that we chronic diseases that we've seen or that we're seeing and it appears that the microbial world gut microbiome has a lot to do with that with any of those diseases um in general i've always assumed this is a trend that has really happened over the last 75 years since end of world war ii um industrialization of of agriculture and and and, and other things but do you think this has been going on for longer, this extinction, this road towards extinction, or is this really, it has unfolded in the last 75 years? Uh, I, I think it's gone on for longer, but it has clearly accelerated during the 75 years. Um, <clears throat> I think maybe you and I met because we were both interested in the bacteria that lives in the human stomach, Helicobacter. Mm -hmm. and Helicobacter has been one of my great teachers uh, as I've been studying Helicobacter for the last uh, almost 40 years now. Um, uh, we've learned a lot of things. And, I, and I, I want to point something out that many, many people don't know, many doctors don't know. And that is that if we consider diseases that involve the stomach, it, well, well let, let me go back a step and say that the evidence is pretty clear that Helicobacter pylori is an ancient organism, that it has been around in the human stomach 
since before we were humans. It, it really goes back a long way. And one of the consequences of having Helicobacter pylori is that some people get stomach cancer as a result of that. And stomach cancer also is an ancient disease. Hippocrates described stomach cancer. And it's a disease mostly of the elderly. It's kind of the aging in general. It's the aging of the stomach. And that has a consequence in some people uh, uh, they, they die from stomach cancer, from helicobacter. So helico uh, stomach cancer has been recognized all along. But in the 19th century, a, a new disease was recognized, uh, and that was ulcers of the stomach, gastric ulcers. It was first found in young women. And there was like an epidemic in, in, Nor in England, US, Northern Europe for about 50 years. Stomach, stomach ulcers, young women would bleed to death from their ulcers. This was, this was a new disease. It, 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 it just hadn't been in the medical literature. And it was, it was dramatic enough that it wouldn't have been missed. It, so this was new. And then that one faded. And then, uh, then, then ulcer, duodenal ulcer disease arose. And it, it arose, it reached its peak in the birth cohort that was born in the 1870s and 1880s, basically appearing in the early 20th century when, when people became adults. And, and then, then that started to go down and gastric cancer started to go down. And we now know, we now know that that was because of the uh, loss of Helicobacter pylori, that those are, those are diseases that where helicobacter is causing them. And as, as helicobacter started to disappear, those diseases started to disappear too. And for me, the, 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 the kind of the breakthrough happened in the 1990s when I realized that helicobacter was ancient and it was disappearing. And that's what kind of fueled all, all my thinking. That's what led to the missing microbes hypothesis. I thought, well, if one organism is missing, probably others have have started to disappear too, and that has turned out to be correct. And then, and then a new disease arose uh, uh, in the 1930s. Uh, it was uh, reflux esophagitis, or esophageal reflux, or GERD, or GORD, however you call it. That that was a new disease also. hadn't hadn't been found before, hadn't been described before. And as as you know, as a gastroenterologist, that's just zoomed up since then. Mm -hmm. And that is pretty clearly due to the that Helicobacter is protective mm -hmm. against that disease. So as Helicobacter has been disappearing, the diseases it's associated with are disappearing, and now new diseases are appearing. And that GERD can lead to a new form of cancer, and there's a new form of stomach cancer that has been found. So it's it's kind of a dynamic world. But things began in the 19th century. And and we can use kind of helicobacter as as the uh, as the canary in the coal mine. That's that as the indicator. In the early twentieth century, we began to chlorinate our water, and I think that that as as marvelous a thing as that is for public health, I think it had unforeseen consequences. That but in the case of helicobacter, play the devil's uh, advocate, you could say there wasn't such a good thing that it disappeared. So it was not a good thing that we got rid of it because, yeah, on the one side, it it protected against these ancient stomach cancer diseases. 
but it created a whole range of new diseases that um um so the so the net effect may be you know may not be right well it isn't over yet by the way also the children who don't have helicobacter are at a higher risk for asthma also asthma and allergies so so in 1998 what 25 years ago i wrote in the Brit british medical journal that we'll be giving helicobacter pylori back to children uh, so that you know along the lines that that you're suggesting because in that um there has been a trade-off we've lost some diseases but we've gained others and th the story isn't over we don't know which is better my one of my ideas is that we've had helicobacter for so long and by and large it's pretty benign mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, 90 95 people out of 100 don't have any consequence mm -hmm. and there's an old saying uh, that nature abhors a vacuum mm -hmm. and uh, so when helicobacter disappears it, it creates a niche it was the dominant organism of the human stomach. I, I'm not sure that the next helicobacter is going to be as benign for us as this one has been mm -hmm. in, that. Mm -hmm. in that. So if you only focus on one piece, helicobacter can look awful or it can look wonderful, but you have to look at the whole picture. Yeah, that's always the thing. Yeah. I mean, one point that I always throw in in, this, in in these discussions, even though nobody is really interested in that anymore. So when I came... In my training, you know, to work with John Walsh at 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 UCLA, obviously, that that research institute was all focused on on factors underlying the peptic ulcer epidemic, and you know, I I personally always pursued this uh, this avenue that stress does chronic stress does play an, an an important role, and and now today we know this interaction of the sympathetic nervous system with the microbes actually can change their behavior. So increased gene expression, virulence of many microorganisms, norepinephrine leaking into the gut and then interacting with, um, you know, uh, adrenergic-like receptors. Um, so that story, that part of the story was completely, you know, abandoned and forgotten. So now I think we have a situation after war was declared on helicobacter in general, um, at the end, we may come out with something that we never expected, like often in, in medicine. That, um, yeah, I, I've been blowing that horn for the last 25 years. Uh, and, and, and as you know, most, most physicians, most gastroenterologists still think the only good helicobacter is a dead one. Yeah, yeah. That, that's the practice of medicine today. And... I think it's it's very short-sighted. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you another question uh, in terms of extinction. Um, so this is two two things that one could um, one one explanation that one could use for if you can't measure something without currently currently available techniques in in the microbiome. You could either say it's extinct or it's below the detection threshold of our techniques. And I was kind of, um, and there may be many explanations, I'd like to hear yours. In this recent study by the Sonnenbergs, where they compared uh, a um, probiotic-rich diet with, or fermented food-rich diet with, with a high-fiber diet, that actually the 
the, the fermented food diet had a greater impact on the diversity of the microbiome. And the most interesting part of the story was that it was not due to the to the microbes in in the fermented food um, and lactobacillus and bifidobacteria, but other microbes appeared all of a sudden in 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 that setting. Is this something that we that could explain some of the you know the to explain some of the extinction that we have been seeing, or do you think? So when you say extinct, you think it's really gone, just like animals that are, or, or uh, you know. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of evidence for extinction, unfortunately, uh, where Helicobacter, again, is, is a very good example. We can tell whether somebody has it or, or they don't have it. We can tell it many different ways. It's, um, uh, But there also is the possibility that certain organisms, you see, the, the the thing that I like to remind people about is that microbes are small, uh, and uh, uh, they're really small. And and in our body, we have certain microbes, you know, that we have a hundred billion of them or more, and we have some that we have a billion, and some that we have a million, and maybe some that we have a thousand. You know, there's a whole range, and that's true in many ecological systems. It's not just true in the human body that there's that there's a big difference in the abundances that we have. You know, and one of one of my theories about antibiotics is that um, you know when you take an antibiotic, um, <clears throat> you suppress many different organisms, and the numbers go down. Now, if you started with a hundred billion, when the antibiotic is over. At the end of the day, you're still going to have a lot of bacteria left. But if you only had started with a thousand, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you won't do that well. And one one of the ideas is every time we take an antibiotic, some strain or some species goes extinct. When you change your diet, uh, and now your microbiome changes, is it because the diet has brought in the new organisms, or were they actually there already in a low number? And now they have bloomed to reach a level uh, that can be detected. And I, I think we can study that experimentally, you know, let's say with germ-free mice and we colonize them. But in, in real-world studies, it's a little hard to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it, it's certainly possible that, <clears throat> you see, you see in, 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 in the gut, we can just say there are good guys and bad guys. And... and Sometimes you have an organism that's a bully. It's dominating everybody else and it's suppressing everybody else. And now you change something, you bring in its enemy and now the other guys can flourish. Mm -hmm. Not because not because it was present in the yogurt, but because the organisms in the yogurt suppressed the bully. Oh, okay. But that's, yeah, that's an interesting explanation that... Um... Another point, I mean, each of these topics we could go on for a long time, but I wanted to cover sort of a wide range of of uh, of, of issues that I personally find very interesting. And, and you know, I, I know you're one of the few people who can really give the most authoritative answers to um, coming back to this, this microbiome change, the association of, of micro, gut microbiome changes and the increase of, of chronic diseases. Um, there's obviously multiple mechanisms of how this could come about. And um, 
um so there's i would say really two 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 major categories one is that it would be related to the systemic immune activation that's triggered by the diet and the, the change in microbes and then the change in the gut barrier and you know activation of uh, of the gut-based immune system but it could also be because these microbes produce these specific metabolites um, some of them neuroactive some of them um, have been involved in many uh, disease processes like canurinin a tryptophan metabolite or do you think it's a combination of both i've this is one of the few areas in my career why i felt where i felt that it's sort of like the the string theory of chronic disease it's it's the inflammation you know it, so a lot of lay media share that kind of idea as a scientist you're always skeptical when something like this happens um so what what do you think do you, do you think the the low-grade inflammation throughout the body or metabolic endotoxemia is really the main factor that links the micro the diet the microbiome changes and with these chronic diseases well as you said we could discuss this for a long time really a long time uh, i actually try not to use the word inflammation i try to use it as little as possible it's kind of like if i said to you well now i'm breathing and now i'm breathing i'm, bre I'm breathing all the time so the thing is that our body has an immune system and it has many different components and arms and it, it is active all the time. It's it's just it's just part. It's just like breathing. It's mm -hmm. there all the time. And a big part of it is to interact with our microbiome. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's there every moment. And so the, really, the question is, you know, where are the set points? Where where are the thresholds? And and how does the interaction between the immune system and the microbiome affect it? You know, when when you see an allergen. For example, you know, when, when you're when a cockroach walks across your skin, you know, everybody's going to get allergic. But can can you turn off that allergen or not, that allergic response or not? And so that that's an example. And, and again, all of this could affect the brain in many different, many different ways through metabolites, through hard wiring. Uh, uh, as well, so I, don't, I I I try not to use the word inflammation uh, uh, for for that reason. Yeah, I mean that to me also. I mean inflammation. You know, from medical school on, inflammation is involved with white cell increased white cells and infection. Yeah. And um... yes, and and in some cases, um, it's a very useful term. You know, when somebody has you know, an abscess, they have, you know, a terrible, they have a wound, it's mm -hmm. got infected, there's pus everywhere. I mean, that's, that's, that's a very acute inflammatory situation that we all know, we all recognize. But the kinds of things we're talking about are much more subtle. Mm -hmm. They're, they're really about thresholds and set points, you know, the relationship between activation and suppression the immune the immune system is a two-edged sword it, sometimes it activates sometimes it represses and um and health is is kind of when they're in the proper balance whatever that might be yeah so i mean staying with this with, with this point so let's say this this inappropriate engagement of of of, of the immune system um just by increasing the <laughs> 
thinning the mucus layer, the gut, basically breaking down the barrier, compromising the barrier. Um, but the, but the microbial world has its own sort of I always call it the aspirin of of, of the microbial world. The the short chain fatty acids, butyrate, you know, which have these beneficial effects and anti-inflammatory effects on locations from the gut uh, epithelium to immune cells uh, and all the way up to uh, to the brain. So there's almost like this this yin and yang. If there is an engagement of the immune system. The microbes will also produce substances that will suppress or contain it, um, and it's the balance between those two that that really determines if it's pathological or you know if it. Would, I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I you know I'm um, I'm very focused on early life. I'm I'm focused on how things develop. We know even before the microbiome was discovered, we know that babies go through a kind of developmental cascade. You know, they get bigger, their brains get bigger, you know, they have more functions. Early life is, is the critical time when things are developing. And of course, it's when the microbiome is developing also. So I, I think that, that in, in modern life, because of antibiotics and other factors and C-sections, et cetera, we have changed the balance between the microbiome and the development of immunity and metabolism and cognition. And they're all intermixed. They're not, they're not isolated. The, the, the hormones and the T cells, they're all, they're taught and the nervous system, they're all talking together. So let's see. So, you know, what, what, what you might find uh, particularly interesting is a study that we did a couple of years ago uh, with colleagues at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, the Mayo Clinic is located in uh, in Olmsted County, Minnesota. And there have been many studies that have been done of populations in Olmsted County because it's a very stable population. They have very good medical records and almost everybody gets their medical care from the Mayo Clinic. So I visited there a few, a few years ago at the Mayo Clinic. And I thought, why don't we do a study of uh, antibiotics in the kids uh, uh, from Olmsted County, and uh, my colleagues at the Mayo Clinic agreed. And so um, a pretty big study was done. We studied all the children born in Olmsted County over a several-year period. Turned out we studied about 14,000 children. And we, we basically asked three questions. First, what was their antibiotic exposure early in life? Second, what kind of health conditions did they have when they were a little older? And third, were they were the two things related. So we found that about 70% of kids received antibiotics in the uh, first two years of life. They got the common antibiotics that kids mostly get. Some of them got multiple courses of antibiotics. 30% didn't get any. And then we found that between the age, and we looked at antibiotics up to the age of two. And then we looked at health conditions after the age of two, from two to 14. And we studied uh, 10 different health conditions, uh, common health conditions in childhood, asthma, uh, hay fever, uh, eczema, uh, uh, you know, dermatitis, um, food allergies, celiac disease, obesity, overweight, ADHD, autism, learning disabilities. This, this study was unusual because we looked at all 10 conditions at the same time. Uh, and and then we we did a statistical analysis, and in this kind of analysis, 
we construct something called a hazard ratio. <clears throat> so a hazard ratio of one says that antibiotics are neutral. They have no, there's no relationship with the subsequent disease. But in this case, we found that all 10 conditions had hazard ratios greater than one. And eight of the 10 were statistically significant. There was a significant association. And we also found that the number of antibiotic courses mattered. The more courses, the greater the disease. The timing of the antibiotics mattered. For some diseases, it, the first six months of life was really important, and others, it was the next year of life. And also, some antibiotics were worse than others. So th this was really a, a remarkable finding. And since then, I've done studies with colleagues uh, looking at a population in, the, in England a population of more than 1 million children. And actually, we've confirmed almost all the findings. We presented this at a meeting, and we're just working on the manuscript now. That's um, amazing and, and shocking at the same time. I mean, if um, most people, you know, what they think about, they get an upset stomach or diarrhea after an antibiotic course. But I think few people, particularly parents of small children, that kind of twist the arm of their family practitioner to give them an antibiotic for the bad cough or respiratory infection, they're not really aware of this. And what what do you think is the solution? I mean, antibiotics are essential, they are an essential tool in, 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 in medicine. What do you think the solution is to to deal with this collateral damage? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really the big question. And you know, we've we've kind of been digging this hole for the last 75 years since antibiotics have come in the scene. And, you know, I, I can give you an example. Uh, you know, there's a very common condition in children, ear infections, uh, otitis media. And um, we know that most of those are caused by viruses. They're not caused by bacteria, but many kids end up leaving the doctor's office with an antibiotic. So we can think of a spectrum. I, I think that there are some kids who have really terrible ear infections, and those kids must get antibiotics. We can say that's the black end of the spectrum. And at the other end, there are kids who have very mild, they have sniffles, they're not very sick at all. They should never get antibiotics. We can call that the white end of the spectrum. And in between, there's a big gray area in the spectrum. And different doctors are cutting that gray at different points. In, the, in Sweden, they're using 40% of the antibiotics that we're using. So they're cutting it way down on, on the white size. And even in US practices, there's tremendous variation in doctors. So one of the things is try to move people, doctors, more to that white side of the spectrum and, and move the expectation of parents that most of these conditions don't need antibiotics. So it, it, it takes a big educational campaign. It's one of the reasons that I was happy to work with the filmmakers to make Invisible Extinction mm -hmm. so that we can talk to the public directly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, in our previous conversations, you also mentioned another strategy to develop different types of antibiotics that are selective for a particular organism. It don't cause this white collateral damage on other organisms. How, how, how far along is that field of research and development? Well, you know, the idea uh, is gaining ground. And, and the, the idea is instead of, instead of 
most of the antibiotics we're using today are, are, are broad spectrum antibiotics that have a lot of effect. When you take one, it's affecting all the microbes in your body. Um, but you know, you're only infected, let's say with one bacteria, you only have strep or you only have E. coli. Mm -hmm. So we, we need to develop narrow spectrum antibiotics, you know, what we might call strepsilin or E. coli psilin or something like that, that will only just focus in like a laser uh, on, on, those, uh, on those bugs. I think the technology is there to do it. The problem is that the, there's no market for it. Uh, you know, the idea, because the current broad spectrum antibiotics are very inexpensive. You know, why would, why would a health system uh, pay $300 for a course of antibiotics when they can do it for $5? Mm -hmm. So we, but, but I think that we need to develop it as a matter of, of national policy. It, our country and other developed countries, it's like none of us can afford to build uh, an interstate highway ourselves we use our tax dollars because that's a public good. We're all benefiting from it. We, we need to develop narrow spectrum antibiotics and we need to develop the diagnostics so that we say, okay, this child has a strep infection and this child has a viral infection. They don't need anything. And if they have this strep infection, then we have to take, we have to create strepsilin and take it off the shelf and use it. And it won't have collateral damage. What do you think? I mean, this is not directly related, but um, I, I just want to hear your your opinion on this. So there is a strategy in an area that, you know, I've been working on for a long time in irritable bowel syndrome to um to give um to give an antibiotic um as a as a treatment, presumably targeted at small bowel intestinal overgrowth, which is a questionable entity, really highly questionable. And the whole cottage industry has been built around that topic. And uh, so this is obviously the worst thing that you can do today. I mean, to give to relatively healthy people. And there are attempts to move the age limit down and get approval by the NIH, uh, by the FDA to, to, to also treat young patients with this. Isn't this kind of an, 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 an amazing uh, development that runs counter to all of our insights and all the things we have talked about. Yeah, I think you have hit the nail on the head. It's a terrible idea. And part of it is that there are many things about the human body that we don't understand. And there's kind of an instinct to throw an antibiotic at it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so the, this kind of, as you say, this small bowel uh, overgrowth or SBO, um, is, is a fairly vague diagnosis. Uh, there are tests that, that can detect it, but those quest tests have a questionable basis themselves. Mm -hmm. and, there, and there are companies that are selling drugs that are useful for that, in, for the real cases of that, but it, it's, that, that diagnosis has just has bloom, have blossomed yeah. kind of out, of out of proportion. So I, I think this is mostly a medical fiction. And um, and of course, giving more antibiotics is is moving in exactly the wrong direction. Uh, I think it's the doctor actually suggested it for my daughter uh, who has celiac disease, who we discussed in the film, and I said absolutely not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that we're really on 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 the same wavelength of that. Um, 
even though the majority of physicians and gastroenterologists have sort of bought on to this yeah, idea. It, you know, it, it sounds good. It's very, it's very appealing. But when you study it and you ask, okay, so did the people who you treated with antibiotics, did they get better? The answer is, is no. Sometimes the tests got better, but the people didn't get better. So that means that the tests aren't really measuring what we what we want to measure, what yeah. we need to measure. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's end this conversation with a couple of sort of more general questions asking your personal opinion. So looking into the future, do you believe that humans will dramatically change their lifestyle that they have switched to in the last 75 years um, and their interactions with the environment, which is part of that, um, to prevent catastrophic consequences, as you um, pointed out, you know, many years ago in your book, Missing Microbes, um, that the, uh, the antibiotic winter and others, do you think humans will make that change in the next, I don't know how much time we have, you know, 10 years, 20 years? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, um, I wanted to call my book Antibiotic Winter, but the publisher thought it was too scary. And uh, so antibiotic winter is, is chapter 15 in the book. And it is the scariest part because what I was worried when, when I wrote this in 2012, what I was worried about was pandemic, was, you know, a pandemic that um, that would just spread around the world. You know, uh, of course, we've now just seen such a pandemic. And as, as bad as COVID has been, uh, there have been worse pandemics. And, and there is the potential for a worse pandemic. And part of the problem is that our microbiome is our Coast Guard. It's, mm -hmm. our, it's our first line of defense against invading organisms. And we've been depleting it. So I, as bad as obesity is and asthma and allergies, pandemic is, is the thing that's really scary. That's, that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. And so we have to figure out how can we replenish our microbiome? How can we get it back to a, 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 a more ancestral state so that as a population, we have more resistance to invaders? That, that's the real, that's the big worry. Um, I mean, do, if you look at how slow things are moving, for example, with, with climate change, there's these annual conferences and pledges being made and then not much really the needle doesn't really move that much you know it's more um so do you see enough changes worldwide in the in the appropriate in the inappropriate use and excessive use of antibiotics and c-section deliveries and diet encroachment of wild habitats um that suggests we will be able to dodge the bullet yeah, you know, it's it's not it's not black or white. It's not yes or no. I, I'm hoping that we can sh turn the ship around. It's got a lot of momentum. It's got a lot of inertia. We want to we we want to we we want to turn it around uh, gradually. Um, uh, gee, I was going to say something, and now the whole thought is just has flown away. I, I had such <laughs> I know that phenomenon. <laughs> I, I had such a good thought to tell you, but. Uh, um, um, yeah, maybe we, we we can come back to. Oh, this. oh, I know what it is. I know what it is. You, you see, the the problem I, I think that one of the really biggest problems is that we fell in love with antibiotics. Antibiotics came on the scene; they were so miraculous, 
that we, we the medical profession, the public, it's it's a pillar of our civilization that antibiotics are good for us. And as a result, we've been using them more and more and more for, for increasingly marginal uses. And it's because of the, the idea is this might not help you, but it won't hurt. But as studies like the one we did with the scientists at Mayo Clinic are showing, and, and, and I'll tell you about a couple of other studies in a moment, maybe every time we take an antibiotic, it, there's some cost to us. And when you, when you summate it all, then it means that we have to change the practice because we have been overestimating the benefits and underestimating the costs. And we, we need more transparency. And, and you know, I'm hoping that uh, uh, parents, instead of saying, give my child an antibiotic, they'll, they'll go to the doctor or health practitioner and they'll say, please examine my child carefully and let us know what we need to do. Will the child need an antibiotic or are they better off without? I'd like to change the conversation. And I think as people understand that antibiotics have consequence, that they have costs, long-term costs, I think, I, I think we're going to be turning that boat around. What I wanted to mention to you is I, I've been mostly focused on kids, but there are now a number of big epidemiologic studies of adults. There, there are two studies in England, uh, in Europe, one in England and one in Denmark, each one a study of more than a million people that looked at the relationship between prior antibiotics and the diagnosis of diabetes. And both studies showed that the people who have diabetes today had more courses of antibiotics in the preceding 15 years than the people who didn't. And even years earlier, so it's not the false, it's not falsely related to diabetes. It, it really preceded by years. Both of these studies showed the same thing, big scale. And now, this is type two, it's, it's type two. This is type two diabetes, adult onset diabetes. Mm -hmm. There have now also been two studies of kidney stones showing that uh, people who have kidney stones had higher exposure to antibiotics in the years preceding. Now, we know that kidney stones are a metabolic disease. We know that microbiome has something to do with metabolism. And so it, it, this kind of thing is plausible. And the incidence of kidney stones keeps rising. In the United States, about one person in 10 is, is now going to get a kidney stone in their lifetime. So you know, when did a doctor ever tell you that if you took an antibiotic, it might increase your chance for kidney stone, that it might yeah. increase the chance for diabetes? That, that's not in the conversation, but I'm predicting that it will be because the data keep coming out. There was also a very good study. You're, you're familiar with the nurses study, which has been going on for decades now, where more than 100,000 nurses were enrolled in studies looking at their behaviors, their exposures, and their health outcomes. Well, recently there was a paper of 16,000 uh, participants in the nurses study who had colonoscopy uh, after the age of 60. And of those 16,000, about 1,300 had polyps, which you know is the pre-malignant lesion in the colon. And so the investigators who had very, they have all the records from the nurses study, they say in the 20 year period between the age of 40 and 60, which group had more antibiotics, those who had the polyps or those who didn't? The answer is those who had the polyps had more antibiotics in the 20 year period. And it was statistically significant. And then they said, how about in the 40 years before, between the age of 20 and 40, 
what was the antibiotic use in them? And the women who had the polyps, they had more antibiotics also. Wow. All of these point, uh, all, all of these point to the idea that antibiotics have costs, and they have costs for diseases that are rising. You you know that colon cancer, th there's a, a big rise in in colon cancer in young people. Yeah, yeah. So you know, people weren't. This wasn't on the radar before, but. Uh, Part of our job is to put it on the radar. Yeah, and it's amazing, particularly this example with colon cancer and younger populations. So the response of the medical system has been to lower the threshold for the screening colonoscopies, which is obviously not the answer to this problem. You know, if if antibiotics early in life play such a role, then there should be more pressure in 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 that area rather than you know. Right. Let's see to find them earlier. In, in a, yeah. in I, I don't think they're not exclusive. You don't. You, we're not. You don't have to choose one or the other. I think early screening makes sense when you when you have rising disease. But we have to get to the root cause of it. Yeah. So let me ask you one last question. Um, I think I know the answer after our conversation. If if there is one intervention that you think will have the biggest impact on our current chronic healthcare epidemic, which one do you think that will be? Uh, I think I'll pick two. <laughs> I'll pick two. One is that we have to decrease our exposure to broad-spectrum antibiotics. That means fewer antibiotics and the development of narrow spectrum so that we can, we can decrease the damage so that whatever is done is done in our population, but we don't keep damaging it generation after generation, because there's evidence that it, it, it crosses generations as well. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, I think that we need to start to restore. We have to understand the microbes that are really important early in life. And then we, I'm predicting that we're gonna be giving these microbes back to children to bring them back the, the kind of the critical, the keystone microbes uh, to bring them back to their ancestral state, that state that we have lost. Uh, I'm, I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime uh, or your lifetime, but I, I'm, I'm, hope, I'm thinking that it's going to happen you know, over the next few decades, that we're going to understand what are the critical organisms. And then just like we give kids vaccines to protect them against polio and tetanus, et cetera, they're going to be. They're they're going to drink some organisms, and that's going to restore their microbiome. I think that's what's going to happen. Since you were correct with many of the predictions um, and concepts that you wrote in your book, uh, the missing microbes, along you know more than a decade ago, um, I would imagine you know I would trust your predictions of what's going to help us to get out of this, out of this hole. So, I'd like to thank you. Um, for this wonderful conversation. Also, I want to remind our listeners, we mentioned this a few times, if you hadn't, if you haven't read the book, The Missing Microbe, please do it. It's still as, as um, accurate and topical as it was uh, when it first came out. And don't miss an opportunity to watch on, uh, on, on Amazon Prime, the movie, The In Invisible Extinction, a, a really eye-opening documentary that addresses many of the topics that we talked about today in practical examples. So um, if you have an opportunity to look at it tonight, um, you, will, you, you will not regret it. 
Thanks so much, Emran. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, and uh, you know, I remember that you you went you you went to work with the Yanomami decades ago. So you're you're you were ahead of your time too. So <laughs> thanks, Marty, and thanks yeah. for the conversation. Yeah, bye -bye. nice to talk to you. Bye bye.